from anything Job could have conceived. Terrible in its non-anthropocentrism, but nevertheless wildly beautiful and madly loved. All right. Well, uh, welcome everybody to the House of Mercy Sunday Service Podcast. Uh, um, I hope you're all doing well. Debbie, you doing well? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Russell? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, pretty good. Um, well, we've been doing this for some time now. I don't know. I think it's uh, um, 18th, uh, our 18th month we've been in here. Um <laughs> We could have had two children by now, um, and uh, but uh, yeah, it's. I guess we've kind of gotten used to it in a little bit. Uh, so anyway, let's move on. So you're uh, you're preaching on Job as uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm preaching on Job. That uh, opening reading was from Abby Pelham. A lot of people might know Abby. She used to sing with the House of Mercy Band and. She's done a lot of work on Job. She has a fantastic book. Really was, amazing, really amazing. Yeah, from that book. And she's also written a lot of articles about Job. So I really read a lot of Abby Pelham uh, this week. That's great. Like, how, how has it been for you preparing these sermons? I mean, to me, it feels a little different writing a sermon. Usually when I write a sermon, I kind of, I have, I have you all people in mind. You know, when I'm writing it. And it I, it just doesn't seem the same somehow. Well, it's really different to preach a sermon into a phone. And I've realized I've, in the, I don't know, maybe they're more like Bible studies and like a sort of performance thing or something. But I've enjoyed writing them. But, yeah, it's very different. I feel like I haven't, I feel like I haven't really quite adjusted to it. It feels a little different. And I haven't quite mm, figured out the vibe yet. Um Myself. It's hard to, yeah, preach a sermon into a phone instead of looking at people's faces. Right. I that a lot. I completely miss that, too, because I, um, maybe a little bit more than you do, just because you're, uh, I don't know, just more, a better writer, um, and I am more of a little song and dance man, but uh, I, uh, when I see people out there, I, you know, I cut stuff and move stuff around and emphasize stuff more just how the reaction I'm getting from people. Or, I mean, how the Holy Spirit's moving. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Good. I'm glad the Holy Spirit moves for you, and I'm not a better writer than you at all. But we're yeah. different people, it's true. That is true. We are different people. Um, and and uh, and for that, I think people are grateful. Um, so, uh, what, anything? Oh, you know what I'd like to say? Um I've been hearing from some people who have not gone to the House of Mercy in the past and are not using this as sort of a uh, replacement for that weekly service, but sort of, sort of discovered it. And uh, this is most of their knowledge of the House of Mercy is just listening to the podcast. So to all you, uh, um, welcome. We're glad that you found us. And yeah, if, you, if you're listening to the podcast and you're not a regular giver to House of Mercy, you could consider throwing in a few bucks to keep us alive, and you can do that by going to the website. There's a donate button to click on, and yeah, just a couple dollars, whatever you have, would be great. Or a hundred and seventy-nine dollars. Or three thousand forty-two. Anything, but you know, but really, uh, um, 
And uh, yeah, we're just glad that you're here. And I guess that this is the House of Mercy, and welcome to it. Please join me now in the prayer of invocation. God of mercy, free us to embrace our misapprehensions, to open our fists and be grateful to find them empty, to open our mouths to speak and find what comes out is a mystery. Free us with the knowledge that we have never controlled creation and are simply called to be caught up in it, tumbled and tousled in your presence. Amen. May the peace of Christ be with you all. And also with you. Please now share the sign of peace with those around you. Won't you please join with us in singing House of Mercy hymn number 25, God Put a Rainbow in the Cloud. Shut Noah in the grand old ark He put a rainbow in the cloud When the thunders rolled and the sky was dark God put a rainbow in the cloud God put a rainbow in the cloud God put a rainbow in the cloud When it looked like the sun wouldn't shine anymore God put a rainbow in the cloud sand. God put a rainbow in the cloud just to lead his children to the promised land. God put a rainbow in the cloud. God put a rainbow in the cloud. God put a rainbow in the cloud. When it looked like the sun wouldn't shine anymore, God put a rainbow Please join me now in the prayers of community. I'll end each prayer with Lord in your mercy and invite you to respond. Hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray for the whole damn planet, the full damn planet, from the apex predator to the corona microbe. We exist in opposition to no part of creation. Help us to move through life with gratitude and a chargeless, costless, unrecompensed, all-for-nothing love. To sit and be present in creation like we are a part of it all. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray for those in power, 
that they would properly understand their charge to serve, to regard first and fully those with the least power, with the greatest need, overwhelm them with the possibility of permanent compassion and essential obligation, and help us to set aside all bile and vitriol fomented by frustration and sadness so that we too might find new ways to love our neighbor. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray for all the nurses, police officers, doctors, bite squad drivers, and grocery store baggers, for those who must risk exposure to illness to help the rest of us live life every day in this pandemic time. We pray for those who act to keep us safe, who care for the people we love, who birth our babies, who save our lives and keep us sane. Give them an extra portion of peace and a Holy Spirit-level immune system boost. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray for those in our lives and those who pass through our lives, who are in need of physical, emotional, or spiritual healing. We pray for those who are fighting the coronavirus. We pray for those who are living with cancer and other serious illness in these chaotic times. We pray for those who we love who are dying. Give them every measure of peace and a palpable love. We pray for those who mourn the death of a dear one. We pray for those of us whose mental illness is magnified by this time of isolation. We pray for those who are facing these troubled times in prison, and we pray for those who are imprisoned by addiction. We pray for those who are profoundly lonely. For all of these we ask, bless them, take them in your arms, hold them to you, give them what they need, healing, grace, understanding, acceptance, peace. God in your mercy our prayer. God of mercy, meet us now in this extended time of silence. May our awareness of your presence never leave us. Amen. The reading tonight comes from Job chapters 38 and 39. I'll be reading verses 1, 2, 4, 7 through 9, 16 through 20, and 29 from chapter 38, and verses 1 through 5 from chapter 39. And the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this who darkens counsel 
in words without knowledge. Where were you when I founded earth? Tell if you know understanding. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, who hedged the sea with double doors when it gushed forth from the womb, when I made cloud its clothing and thick mist its swaddling bands? Have you come into the springs of the sea in the bottom most deep walked about? Have the gates of death been laid bare to you, and the gates of death's shadow have you seen? Did you take in the breadth of the earth? Tell if you know it all. Where is the way that light dwells, and darkness, where is its place, that you might take it to its home and understand the paths to its house? From whose belly did the ice come forth? To the frost of the heavens who gave birth. Do you know the mountain goat's birth time? Do you mark the calving of the gazelles? Do you number the months till they come to term? and know their birthing time? They crouch, burst forth with their babes. Their young they push out to the world. Their offspring, batten, grow big in the wild. They go out and do not return. Who set the wild ass free? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Job is sad and furious. I feared a thing and it happened. What I dreaded, it all happened. My whole being loathes my life, he says. Job is a kind of satisfying read in a pandemic during the reign of Trump in the years of unprecedented temperature rise and ice cap melt. Job says, my spirit is wrecked, my days flicker out, graves are what I have. I mean, that might sound a little dramatic, but he does lose everything in this story. His children are killed, his home and livelihood lost, he's stricken with a terrible, painful skin disease and sitting naked on a dung heap scratching his loathsome sores with a piece of pottery. And whoever wrote this book, according to Robert Alter, a Hebrew scholar who I'm pretty sure knows what he's talking about, is by far the best poet in all of scripture. So despair gets some pretty powerful expression in Job. People who experience suffering have been turning to the book of Job for thousands of years. Job seems to take it for granted that God exists, never denies God or curses God, but he has no qualms about accusing God of ignoring justice. The wicked thrive, keep enjoying creaturely comforts escape to their mansions in the Hamptons or Palm Springs. Job accuses God not only of failing to reward the good, but actually tilting the world in favor of the wicked. So the story, you've probably heard it, is that Job was a good man with a wonderful life. 
And then one day, God's having a conversation with some being called an adversary. And God is reveling out loud about what a good and faithful man Job is. And the adversary is like, he's not really so good and faithful. Just take away all his good fortune and you'll see. So God's like, okay, take it away. We'll see. Seems like Job is right to accuse God of anything he wants. Some of the biblical trajectory and and certainly conventional wisdom upholds this idea that God rewards the good and punishes the wicked. You don't even need to believe in God really to believe in this. You reap what you sow. If you put good things into the universe, you'll get good things back. And I mean, it makes sense that people would like to settle on this as the sort of overarching principle of the universe because it gives us a sense that we have some control and it promotes ethical behavior. Goodness is rewarded. But we also know, if we're paying attention, that this simply isn't the truth. Good, honest, wonderful people lose children, lose their minds, get cancer, will die in this pandemic. And people who aren't putting a lot of good in the universe may very well fare better in these circumstances, especially if they have money and power. Job has friends who come to comfort him, but they do an abysmal job. Just keep insisting that the thing is true about the good get rewarded and the wicked get punished. And if Job just admitted whatever wickedness he'd done, they'd all understand why this bad stuff happened to him and it could be over. God might even be nice to Job if Job just stops raging about how God is unfair. It's also a little satisfying in the time of pandemic to read a story where those that insist God will protect the faithful are so obviously wrong. Even God says so in the end. He's, God says they didn't speak rightly. The friends have a lot of moral certainty about what's good and what's bad and not much tolerance for ambiguity. They aren't really interested in Job's pain as much as their rightness. I think most readers probably feel for Job through most of the book. We know from having read the prologue that he hasn't been treated fairly. But then you get to about chapter 29, and Job starts enumerating his innocence in great detail. God may not be just, but Job was so just and so righteous, he says. Eyes I became for the blind, and legs for the lame I was. Really. I cracked the wrongdoer's jaws, and from this teeth I would 
wrench the prey. Oh, yeah? He used to be so great, one of the greatest men ever, in fact, was so much greater than most people that when he walked through the streets, the crowds parted for him and fell into a hushed silence. After my speech, Job says, they didn't respond. My words fell gently on them. They waited for me as for rain, opened their mouths as for spring rain. I smiled on them. They couldn't believe it. Come on. Job thinks his words were like rain to thirsty people. People he makes clear he had no respect for. Now these people laugh at him and his misfortune. Abby Pelham used to sing in the House of Mercy band, brilliant scholar, writes in her article, Job as Comedy Revisited, that once Job perceives he's being laughed at, he hurls every insult he can think of at these people. They're younger than I am. Treating them like dogs is better than they deserve. They're weaklings. They're lazy. They're uncivilized. They're outcasts. They live like animals. They're homeless. They don't have food to eat. They're morons. They don't deserve any respect. They don't deserve to live among civilized human beings. Suddenly, Job seems to be protesting a bit too much to be taken seriously. His face is red. Spit is flying from the corners of his mouth. A tragic hero? One of the most righteous and just people ever? Yes, Job suffers. But the book starts out describing Job as a rich, successful, and honored man with a great abundance of slaves. Apparently, he had a lot of good days in his life. What about his slaves? Did they have a lot of good days? Job admits to actually scorning the people who had no food for having no food. Maybe you can't trust anybody's narrative here. Not Job's, not his friends, a bunch of self-important, overconfident men who can't stop talking about their superior morality and general greatness. Never mind how good the poetry is. One starts to weary of the words coming out of their mouths. And just about then, God shows up in a whirlwind. God's voice comes out of this storm. That's nice. It's so totally different than the sort of speaking we've been hearing. A little sarcastic at first, maybe, but okay. God says, where were you when I gave birth to the world? God starts talking about the sea and ostriches and eagles and darkness and light, the stars and the big, complex, far-flung, incredibly diverse whole of creation. God changes the frame of reference so completely, makes it way wider, stretches it way out. Job and his friends are so determined to differentiate the righteous from the wicked and to make sure each group gets what it deserves. God comes and just starts blessing everything. 
seemed so free with the love and the attention. People have often read God's response to Job as unsatisfying because God doesn't exactly address the things Job and his friends wanted to talk about. But it's also refreshing because your focus is shifted away from these long-winded men who seem a bit enamored of themselves. In Genesis, God speaks and the world is. In Job, the images are less God speaking to make the world and more of God giving birth to life. The sea burst forth from God's womb. From whose belly did the ice come forth, God asks. To the frost of heavens, who gave birth? Clearly, for a number of reasons, not Job's belly. The creation in Genesis is more orderly. God separates things and seems to set some things over other things, gives humans dominion or caretaking responsibilities. In fact, a lot of people have read the whole Genesis account of creation as if the whole universe was made for the sake of humans. Well, there's no misreading that way when the whirlwind speaks. God barely mentions humans when God speaks from the whirlwind. Certainly not of putting man in charge. God speaks of the dawn, the deep, dew, Pleiades, Orion, bears, ravens. God marvels at the big wide world, marvels at the stars and skies, lions hunting, goats calving, the strength of the horse, the birds soaring, wild beasts playing. God doesn't speak of dominating or subduing anything, though God does set a boundary for the sea. God sets the wild asses free. The sea is the archetypal symbol of the forces that threaten humanity. In this poem, God makes garments for it, swaddles it like a baby. God goes on and on about all the wild life, like God loves it, all of it. Sometimes people read this poetry as if it's meant to demonstrate God's omniscience and omnipotence. As if God means to draw all eyes to God's self and all God's greatness. God really isn't focusing on herself as much as adoring what she gave birth to here. Like a mother admiring her children. More than a patriarch demanding he be worshipped. God doesn't speak gloriously of the animals because they are all focusing on God or because they've made God the center of their lives. God just seems to like them, whether or not they're paying any attention to her. Job is angry when the people who used to admire him stop paying attention to him. Job disdains the pathetic lives of the unruly brood who are like animals to him. God admires the animals, speaks passionately about the unruly brood. When God comes in and takes the focus of Job and Job's tragedy, it could seem like God is being uncaring. 
but maybe it's more of a graceful move, a gift. Maybe God is like, look, maybe get out of your head. Look, look outside of yourself. Look around. Look at it all. Maybe God is trying to give us a break from ourselves. Abby says God shows Job a world different from anything that Job could have conceived. Terrible in its non-anthropocentrism, but nevertheless wildly beautiful and madly loved. We aren't the gods of the earth. Maybe this makes us feel small. But my goodness, we need a God who cares for all of creation, not just humanity. Our cognitive capacities are pretty limited. Our senses are great. I love them. But they actually perceive only a small portion of physical reality. It seems like God might be saying, you really don't know everything. But come on out here and take a look around. There's definitely an ebb and flow of darkness and light in these verses. I love this one. Where is the way that light dwells and darkness where is its place that you might take it to its home and understand the path to its house? I think we usually think of the darkness as a problem to be solved more than something that has a home. God doesn't come across as uncaring in this poetry so much as widely caring. Caring in some way that is beyond our ability to conceive. God isn't judging, censoring, or slaying any part of the wild creation in this poetry. God gave birth to it. And like a mother, God is nursing it, swaddling it, and setting it free. Maybe it's a long process, but maybe this is the sort of loving that eventually, someday, or somewhere outside of days, brings everything into its full flourishing. Maybe God is loving the world into its fullest being. This is God's table, and all are welcome. On the night Jesus suffered, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after the meal, he took the cup and said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of all sin. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. You may serve one another communion during the closing hymn. Please join with us in singing House of Mercy hymn number 27 on the Jericho Road.
to travel along on the Jericho Road. Does the world seem all wrong and heavier though? Just bring it to Christ, your sins are May the radical mercy of our Creator move you and move with you through the days until we gather together again. Amen.